This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Yes, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's theme when he became president in 1933, I think is appropriate to revisit here in 2009. History, to a disturbing degree, has been repeating itself of late. But, uh, you know, that is just one great tune. I think it's going to be our bumper music du jour. It is the kind of tune that has the ability to lift one's spirits. And, uh, oh yeah, a few things happened this week. To quote from the Sacramento Bee, George W. Bush left Washington Tuesday, ending one of the least popular presidencies in history. I didn't catch this when I was watching the live coverage, but when Bush entered the Capitol grandstands, the huge crowd below began singing. And I must say, we, we haven't found a great deal to make positive commentaries on regarding George W. Bush for as long as I can remember on this show. But on the History Channel, on Inauguration Day, they aired, and I, and I don't know whether this is the first time or whether it was a re-airing, a tour of the White House that was actually quite interesting. It was the only interview I've ever seen with Laura Bush, and George managed to look rather personable, although it was interesting that even when the pressure wasn't on, and he was relaxing in his own house with the cameras running, he was still remarkably inarticulate. And I, and I do mean remarkably. But I do want to say, Laura Bush seemed like a nice lady. Let us start the program as we like to do during this momentous week of history, this inaugural week, by our look back at this date in history, January the 22nd. On this date in 1901, Queen Victoria died, ending a 63-year reign, the longest in British history. She saw the growth of an empire on which the sun never set and reportedly restored dignity to the English monarchy and ensured its survival as a ceremonial political institution. Two years later, in 1903, the the South American nation of Colombia sold America the rights to build a canal. Although, as I recall, when America didn't quite get get its way exactly the way it wanted, they then induced a rebellion in the provinces of Colombia, which broke off to become the independent nation of Panama, which the U.S. immediately recognized, and just for good measure sent down gunboats to make sure Colombia didn't take it back. On January 22nd in 1905, the first Russian Revolution began on Bloody Sunday, when troops of the Tsar opened fire on a peaceful group of workers marching to the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg to present their grievances to Tsar Nicholas II. Some 500 protesters were massacred. Months of disorder followed throughout Russia, and this incident paved the way, 12 years later, 
what became the October Revolution, which put a communist system in charge of Russia. Speaking of Russia, on this date in 1980, Andrei Sakharov, the Soviet physicist who helped build the USS first hydrogen bomb, was arrested in Moscow after criticizing Soviet military intervention in Afghanistan. He was subsequently stripped of his numerous scientific honors and banished to the city of Gorky. On this date in 1997, Lottie Williams, minding her own business and walking in a Tulsa, Oklahoma park, became the first human being struck by space junk. Lottie was hit by a six-inch piece of metal from a falling Delta II rocket. But of course, what today is perhaps most famous for, at least here in the United States, is the fact that on this date in 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Roe v. Wade that women can terminate a pregnancy during the first two trimesters. I did note that uh, although normally uh, uh, protests are held on January 22nd every year, the anti-Roe v. Wade people got together two days before the inauguration this year on January 18th to launch a protest during the last two days of the Bush administration. Luckily for supporters of Roe versus Wade, George Bush was only able to get two anti-abortion justices on the Supreme Court, Sam Alito and John Roberts. It would appear that Roe v. Wade is going to remain the law of the land for some time. Our quote of the day comes from Jay Leno, who said, President Bush said he's leaving Washington with his head held high because that's the best way to spot shoes that are coming at you. Our quip of the day comes from Craig Ferguson, commenting upon our dire economic conditions, said Mr. Ferguson. Hotels in Washington are overbooked. Things are so bad, Bill and Hillary Clinton have to share a room. Our stat of the day is as follows. The world's oldest person is now reported to be 114-year-old Gertrude Baines of Los Angeles, who was born to former slaves during the Grover Cleveland administration. In an interesting moment of trivia, Barack Obama himself mistakenly thought that he is the 44th man to be president. He is not. He's the 43rd man, even though he's the 44th president. That's because Grover Cleveland is considered both the 22nd president from his election in 1884, and the 24th president for his election in 1892. Gertrude Baines evidently caught the end of the 24th president's administration. Our joke of the day comes from Prop 8, the musical, in which comedian Jack Black portrays Jesus Christ. To paraphrase it slightly, the Old Testament says that homosexuality is an abomination. But then it says the same thing about crab cakes, a shrimp cocktail, and ham sandwiches. So we know you do need to put things in perspective. And in a couple items of follow-up, we reported on Minnesota Vikings tight end Vicente Shianko being caught on national television with his pants down. (laughs) We love Shianko's follow-up quote on the matter. It's not too bad. I didn't just get out of the pool. And from the Only in America file, we have some follow-up on the story about Heath Campbell, the man who a couple months back was, who was outraged when a nearby ShopRite supermarket refused to inscribe a cake with his son's first and middle names, Adolf Hitler, for the kid's third birthday party. Well, although Mr. Campbell was inviting the world to share in his outrage at the injustice, the world apparently didn't see it quite the same way. 
In fact, Child Protective Services took a look at his three children and have now taken them out of his custody. Although authorities are closed-mouthed on exactly why the children were taken away, they've noted that it wasn't just because of the names. Who were named after Adolf Hitler, Heinrich Himmler, and the Aryan Nations organization. Let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a good week last week for George, a giant 20-pound lobster said to be 140 years old. Apparently, a New York seafood restaurant that was displaying him in a tank agreed to set him free in the ocean rather than add him to the menu. Assuming George is exactly 140, he would have been born during the administration of Andrew Johnson, our 17th president. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for divorce lawyers after a survey by the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers found that the recession is making it too expensive for many couples to split up. Couples are apparently toughing it out, said the group, until an economic recovery comes along. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for loyalty. After 200,000 people evidently found themselves dropped from their friends' Facebook lists, after Burger King offered a free Whopper to anyone who unfriended 10 people. Man, getting sold out for a Whopper, that's got to be worse than 30 pieces of silver. As far as we know, it wasn't even supersized. You know, we want to talk about uh, the inauguration and some other things, and I think uh, in our third segment, we're going to talk to our old pal Dr. Andy Jones of KDVS's Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour. Now, a lot of people want to give the new president some advice. In fact, we're going to devote our second segment on today's program into trying to do exactly that. We've spent some time thinking about it. We have 20 points to recommend to the new president. When Capital Public Radio and the Sacramento News and Review collaborated to invite people to write letters to Obama, this correspondent found that, sadly, his was not one of the ones selected. Fortunately, Radio Parallax presents a workaround for this. So although I've got uh, 20 points to try and get across to the new president, uh, and we'll try and do that in 20 minutes in segment number two, I hope you caught Keith Olbermann's Eight Years of George Bush in eight minutes, and if you didn't, go to YouTube and look that one up. But we'll see if we can't do 20 items in 20 minutes. In fact, let's just do a prelude and do the item I thought most important uh, for the president and, and just read what I'd... And uh, start off with my letter to Obama, which was, Mr. President, I'm dismayed that America spends what the rest of the world does on arms. I think you must agree that this has not promoted peace at all, for such an arsenal drives its own use and its continuous replacement. Does that not explain the quagmire in Iraq better than any reason offered? In 2009, I hope you'll initiate a national dialogue on the military industry. We must ask how the costs of the Iraq war have exceeded in real terms those of World War II. High-tech bombers, like a B-2, cost more than B-52s, but carry fewer bombs. Dick Cheney said that B-2s, invisible to radar, were key to raids in Iraq. But as they faced no defensive radars, B-52s 
surely would have been better. Technical advances were vital in World War II. They saved lives, but were not why we prevailed. The Allies won because we had objectives, made plans, then followed them. Compare this to Iraq. With no ultimate goal apparent, it cannot be surprising that nobody can figure out how to distill a victory. I note too, sir, that desert nation insurgents don't fear submarines, even $2 billion ones. They won't help in Afghanistan either, yet we order more. We must spend for defense, not wars to control oil fields. We need practical weapons and hardware. A missile defense shield doesn't work, aids only those who make its components. Mr. President, please stop the practice of buying pricey hardware and only then deriving ways to use it. Direct our military industry to build arms that make sense. Then, sir, ensure that they do it. We must direct these contractors, not them us. That, I truly believe, is probably the single most important issue that uh, Barack Obama faces. Although global warming and the economic mess are right behind. This might be a good time, too, to cite that famous quote from Niccolo Machiavelli, which we've used before. Rather wisely and sadly, Machiavelli once said, There's nothing more difficult to take in hand, more perilous to conduct, more uncertain in its success, than to take the lead in introducing a new order of things. Because the innovator will have for enemies all who have done well under the old conditions, and only lukewarm defendants in those who may do well under the new. Those defenders uh, who may do well under the new, that's us. We need to be a little bit more than lukewarm in our support of change. We'll have more to say about that in segment two. Let's take a small detour into matters regarding the media. One to cite as we have before the excellent reporting that you can find in Vanity Fair magazine. Their article on Fannie Mae's Last Stand in the current issue is certainly worth a read. Personally, I was struck in reading it how you have to go to Vanity Fair to find investigative journalism. Because Newsweek is busy covering things like uh, Q-Tip's new hip-hop recording of The Renaissance and the new movie about Notorious B.I.G., a.k.a. Biggie Smalls. As I hold both these in front of me right now, it gives me great pleasure just to kind of take them and do that. Well, we mentioned uh, Hank, uh, Hank Stuver's article uh, in, in December about uh, newspapers. Specifically, uh, the article was titled, Deep Throat's Death Reminds Us Why Newspapers Should Live. God knows, newspapers need to live. I had a chance to attend uh, the latest installment of the excellent California Speakers series on, um, on the 14th of this month. To hear Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein talk about uh, their adventures and the media. They were, uh, they were excellent and pointed out again why we may not do so well in an internet media age. Woodward noted that he's friends with Eric Schmidt, the head of Google, but was complaining to him about the fact that the splash page for Google uh, chooses the items it will put before you based on an algorithm based on which newspapers across the country are covering a story. In this case, the splash page included the story that Condi Rice was decrying the violence in Iraq. Woodward said he told Schmidt, I can assure you this will not be on page one of any newspaper in the country tomorrow. And of course, it was not. It's not really news. 
The guys described how when they were running down what happened in Watergate, they started out with secretaries and clerks, and they worked their way up. I've noted that uh, it doesn't seem that too many bloggers are wearing a lot, out a lot of shoe leather out running down leads. I knew a lot about the story of Woodward and Bernstein, having actually been to the Watergate hearings when I was in college. But I was surprised to learn that uh, they feel that things really turn for them only when Walter Cronkite decided on the CBS Evening News to cover what they were doing in a fairly favorable way. They said up to that point, a lot of people uh, in the media, some people on the Post with them, were buying the Nixon administration's line that they were full of it. Another reason to look up to Walter Cronkite. Don't have time today to go into too much detail about Woodward and Bernstein, but they're certainly a worthy topic for the future. But one thing that stunned me uh, from their talk, in fact, it evidently stunned Bob Woodward, who was given really intimate access to the Bush administration regarding the war in Iraq. He wrote some pretty, uh, pretty tepid uh, uh, books about those, those supposed decisions that I think went, went pretty easy on Team Bush. Woodward describes, though, being in the White House, talking to Bush with other aides present about the time the surge was going to go forward in Iraq. Apparently, st- apparently, aide Steve Hadley had talked to the Joint Chiefs of Staff and had some of the numbers to tell Woodward about, like the fact that it was going to be 30,000 troops. Bush admitted to Woodward when it, came down to, when it came down to picking the actual number of troops, he said, um, I don't know this, explaining that he wasn't necessarily involved in, in the exact number decision because, quote, I've got other things to do, unquote. Woodward wasn't sure what those were, and neither are we. But uh, he, George Bush was reportedly certainly disengaged from a lot of important decisions going down. And he suspects that there were, in fact, no serious debates that ever took place on whether to go to war with Iraq, just how to do it. Anyway, I hope on next week's show to, to kind of revisit that and round out some more of the things that, uh, that I heard at that most interesting talk. And I hope I'll be able to score an interview with Dr. Dean Adell for this program. Dean Adell will be the next speaker in the series coming on February 4th. Oh, and, and one last thing about Woodward and Bernstein. Curiously, I, I was in Washington, D.C. back in 1976 when the movie came out, All the President's Men. I believe it actually had its first premiere in Washington, D.C., and the city was quite excited. It's not used to having Hollywood uh, movie openings there. And although I don't remember this specifically, I, 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 I am pretty sure I saw the movie reviews when they came out on television, and oddly, one of the movie reviewers back in Washington, D.C. at that very time was Dr. Andy Jones's dad. Small world, isn't it? Let's see if we can't get a few words about the inauguration from our good pal, Will Durst. Well, thanks, Doug. And today I just want to marvel at the serene jubilation that enveloped the inauguration of the 44th President of the United States of America. Ensconced on the mall with two million of my closest friends, I just have to say that Tuesday's inauguration was like going to heaven and coming home. Only we had to walk both ways. The metro lines were so long, you'd think they'd stapled $50 bills to all the seats. And cabs were like available mortgages are. A fictional concept. 
Amazingly enough, even with all those people, there were no arrests. Not that there wasn't any crime. I mean, after all, Congress was still in session. But as a testament to democracy, the transfer of power was seamless, except for Dick Cheney dresses Dr. Strangelove scaring small children and the fear that someone might be crushed by Aretha Franklin's hat. The biggest glitch of the day was when Barack Obama and Supreme Court Head Justice John Roberts danced around the oath like two teenagers on a first date. Then two senators went down during the congressional lunch, but Teddy Kennedy is fine after suffering from fatigue, and 91-year-old Robert Byrd quickly recovered from his discovery that the new president is actually a Negro. Poor George Bush. Hardly anybody paid attention to his farewell address. <laughs> Absolutely nobody asked for a forwarding address. Besides, with the shape that he left this country in, let's put it this way, he's not getting his security deposit back. But it's time to look forward now. From here on in, it's full speed ahead. And maybe the new president can scrounge around the Oval Office couch cushions and come up with enough change to put some gas in the tank. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. America's foremost political comic, ladies and gentlemen. Let's take a short break and come back and see if we can't give the new president some advice. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.